0: Once again to Philippians chapter 2, this is the passage that the elders are using in their home visitation, and uh, we looked last week at the first portion, and kind of an overview of the chapter, and I want us to continue in uh, verses 12 and 13. The bulletin says verses 12 to 16, but there was just too much to cover, so we're only going to cover those first two points this morning in the bulletin. we am going to read verses 1 to 16. Philippians 2, 1-16. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's our text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run. In vain or labored in vain. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Work out your own salvation. What does it mean? His name was Anthony or Antony. He was a contemporary of the great champion of the faith, Athanasius, who so passionately defended the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Anthony was raised by wealthy parents, but when he was about 18 or 20 years old his parents died. Six months later, when he was at church, he heard the words of Jesus to the rich man. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He decided to give away his earthly possessions. Most of his money he gave to the poor. He devoted himself to discipline and went to live in the Egyptian desert. He ended up spending most of his life there. Eventually thousands of monks and nuns followed his example. They rejected marriage, possessions, and money as worldly and carnal. They lived as hermits and practiced extreme self-denial. Saint Anthony was one of the most well-known among these early monks. Historians have said that he was hugely influential in inspiring people to take to the monastic life of seclusion, self-denial, and prayer. He considered his body to be a hindrance. He wore only a sheepskin and ate as little as possible. He often fasted through several days and at best ate only bread, salt, and water once a day. He never ate meat. He had no bed. He just slept on the hard, rocky ground. He endured the cold at night and the scorching heat of the day. And he never washed himself. He thought that he could serve God better in the desolate wilderness. As I said, there were many who followed his example. They spent most of their lives in the desert or in the tombs. Eventually, monasteries were built as places where people could go to save their souls. One form of monasticism said that you were saved through work, you were saved through community, and saved through self-denial. Simon, or Simeon, Stylites, was another interesting figure in church history. He was a Syrian monk born around 390 and died in 459. He lived to be 69 years old and spent 37 of those years on top of a 50 foot high pillar in the desert so that he could escape the wicked influences of the world and become closer to God. He spent more of his life on the pillar than he spent on the ground. Kids from a nearby village would climb up the pillar to his three square foot uh, platform with a baluster around it and bring him flatbread and goat's milk so they wouldn't starve to death. Well, prior to the Reformation, in his early years in a monastery, Martin Luther was continually haunted by the question of how to be righteous before a holy God. His Pelagian teachers told him to fast, pray, and work for salvation. And so he diligently sought for holiness and freedom from sin by mortifying the flesh. He would lock himself up in the monastery for two or three days at a time with neither food nor drink, saying prayers. He said that sometimes he became so overwhelmed by his obligation to God that he could not sleep for five nights in a row. He did everything that he should have done and more so that he could be at peace with God. He said of this time, I quote, I tormented myself almost to death. To procure peace with God for my troubled heart and my agitated conscience, but I was surrounded by horrible, thick darkness and could find peace nowhere. Historians have said that no one surpassed Luther in his outward, external desire for holiness. He later claimed of his efforts if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. But the question is, people of God, is this kind of self-denial pleasing in the sight of the Lord? Today from Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, we want to ponder the words of the apostle, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Is he calling you to live as a hermit in the desert? Is he calling you to the monastic life of seclusion, self-denial, and prayer? Is he calling you to the top of a pillar, or to lock yourself up in your room for days without sleep, food, or drink? For verses 12 and 13, I want us to consider two things, the challenge of the apostle and the encouragement of the apostle. First, the challenge that he sets before his readers. Look with me once again in your Bibles to verse 12. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does this verse contradict Paul's teaching elsewhere that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? is he teaching us here that salvation is something for which you must work well we should take a moment first of all to reflect upon the recipients of this command to whom was he speaking when he said work out your own salvation this book begins chapter 1 verse 1 with these words paul and timothy Bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The letter is addressed to saints who are saints. What are saints? The word saint comes from a Greek word which means consecrated to God, set apart. Saints are those who are set apart by God in Christ for the purpose of glorifying Him. In the Bible, saints are ordinary believers, Christians, the church. Everyone who has received Christ and embraced the gospel of his life, death, and resurrection by faith is a saint. And so it's not as though Paul is writing to unbelievers who know little about the Christian faith and telling them that they must begin to work for their salvation or else they will be lost. In this letter, the apostle addresses them six times as brothers, brothers in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them his brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Three times throughout the book, he calls them his beloved. And here in our text, verse 12, Paul is writing to those who had been obedient to Scripture. And genuine obedience flows from saving faith which had been worked into them by God. And so the readers are not being exhorted to work for their salvation, or work toward their salvation, or work to merit their salvation, for they already possess salvation. The challenge of verse 12 is addressed to saints brothers, the people of God, the saved. And so today, if you are saved through faith in Jesus, you have this command, this challenge before you as well. But now before we proceed, I want you to notice the connection of our text with what has gone before. Verse 12 begins with what? Therefore, in other words, there is a link between this verse and the preceding verses. In verses 5 through 11, we see our Lord Jesus Christ, He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, who dwelt in light unapproachable, who occupied the highest place of glory imaginable, we see Him willfully descend to the lowest place of humiliation and shame imaginable till death itself, even the cursed death of the cross. We saw last week that the humility which he demonstrated is the model of the kind of humility God's people need to strive for to preserve unity in the body. Paul says, let this mind be in you. But not only did Christ humble himself, verse 8 also says he humbled himself and became what? Obedient. To the point of death. Not only is the Christian life to be characterized by the humility of Christ, it is also to be characterized by the obedience of Christ. Those who are saved by Christ are called to display the obedience of Christ even as he constantly aimed to do not his own will, but the will of his Father, so those who are in Christ must strive to do the will of our Father. Therefore, my beloved, says Paul, in light of the great act of love which Christ demonstrated, in light of his humility and obedience, which led to him receiving a great reward, therefore, therefore, the Christian is to work following his perfect example of obedience to the Father. So let's move on to what it is that Paul challenged them to work out. Work out your own salvation. Why does Paul say your own? Your own. Well, the Philippian church had been obedient to the teaching of God's Word as it was brought by the Apostle Paul. Verse 12 says that they had always obeyed when he was there with them. That's a real compliment, by the way. Their response to the preaching was commendable. They displayed fruits of righteousness. When Paul taught them about the Christian life, the fruit of the Spirit, the Christian home, what it meant to be a believing husband or wife, what it meant to die to sin, and the importance of living, a living, vibrant witness for Christ. When he taught them about such things, they listened. They listened. Verse 12 says, you have always obeyed. However, Paul has now moved away from them. When he wrote this letter, he was in a prison, In Rome the question is would their gospel motivated obedience continue in his absence previously the believers in Philippi had the privilege of Paul's personal presence they could rely on his experience his biblical knowledge his wisdom example as well as his ability to clearly set forth the truths of Scripture but now he was gone They must have missed him very much. His ministry in their midst had been so formative, so foundational, so solid and inspirational. It motivated them to press on as followers of Jesus Christ. It held the church together. With his absence, it would have been tempting for them to wonder, what now? What now? Can we go on as disciples of Christ without him? And therefore, Paul said, you have fought the good fight and obeyed in my presence. Now continue to do so in my absence. Continue to obey. Don't let my absence diminish your commitment. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, what Paul is saying in general is this. Don't for a moment imagine that my presence or my freedom is essential to to your living the Christian life. In the mercy of God, I was given the privilege of bearing the gospel to you in the first instance, and I was able to teach you and set you on your feet and, in a sense, establish your goings. But you must not think of this new life into which you have come in terms of me as if I were essential to it, You must not feel as though the whole thing is going to end because I am in prison and cannot come and preach to you. You must realize that you yourself have been given the gift of salvation. You have it as much as I have it, and I want you to work that out, that gift which you now have, that life which you have received, work out your own salvation. So, congregation, there is a helpful truth here for us to remember. Whatever your circumstances may be, whatever changes may come in your life, whatever companions, teachers, mentors, friends, or spiritual encourage are removed from your life, don't let any of these things negatively affect your commitment to working out your own salvation. Paul is saying to the Philippians, whether I'm present or absent, be zealous and faithful before the face of God. Keep putting to death indwelling sin. Keep feeding your soul with the word of life. Keep running the race. Keep rejoicing in the cross. Keep living for the glory of the one who saved you. You have received the gospel. Now keep building your life on it. Congregation, Paul had already alluded to this in the previous chapter. Would you please turn back one page in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, my presence or absence should make no difference with respect to your conduct. Whether I'm with you in Philippi or chained in a Roman prison, you need to conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. You must work out your own salvation without the luxury of my spiritual guidance and assistance. But now let's explore just a little more what Paul means by salvation. Work out your own salvation. In his epistles, he uses this word in various ways. The biblical meaning of salvation is not limited merely to the justification of the sinner. It often includes God's redemptive work from start to finish, God's redemptive work in its totality. Salvation has a past, present, and future phase. The Bible teaches that the salvation of every believer is already complete, right? It is complete without any work on your part. Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is finished. And Therefore, the believer's salvation is complete in Him. Ephesians 2.5 says, by grace you have been saved, a past completed act. If you put your trust in Christ, you are freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus paid for them on the cross. You are forgiven and justified before God. That is a once-for-all declaration. But Scripture also teaches that we are yet to be saved. Romans 5, 9, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. The day is coming. When we will be saved from the very presence of sin. When we are glorified, our sin nature will be completely eradicated. What a great, wonderful day that will be. So, Scripture presents us with both a completed aspect of salvation as well as a future aspect. We are saved from the penalty of sin and we will be saved from the presence of sin. but there's also the present. Although we are saved by trusting Christ, we still struggle with the power of sin in our lives. And so the salvation spoken of here in our text includes the entire course of our life, the whole new life which we have received in Christ, a new relationship to God our Father for whom we are to live. While we are living on this earth, We are being saved from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. The tense of the verb that Paul uses here in verse 12 indicates a conscious and strenuous effort. Continue to work out your salvation. You might compare it to when you get married. Once you've made your vows, you continue to live your married life, facing the joys, challenges, and hardships as they come along. Paul is urging them to carry their salvation to completion and to ensure that its influence permeates every aspect of our lives. That can be a difficult, demanding, and draining task. To obtain the crown, there is a race to be run, obstacles to be overcome, and battles to be fought. In Luke 13, Jesus was asked whether the saved would be few in number. How did he respond to that question? He said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. That word strive in Greek is where the English word agonize comes from. Picture a person in a wrestling ring, in a fierce struggle. He is to exert himself with all that he has, straining every nerve in his struggle against the opponent. Isn't that the reality of the Christian life? Struggling with our own flesh, wrestling against principalities and powers, forces that seek to draw us away from our heavenly Father? When a person is regenerated by the Spirit of God and justified by faith in Jesus, he is brought into a new life. But to live that life in the midst of satanic opposition is not easy. Charles Spurgeon reminds us that in this life, we are never to sit down and fold our arms and say, My life work is over. I am saved. I have no pilgrimage to make to the celestial city. I wage no war for driving out the Canaanites. Oh, beloved, says Spurgeon, the time of rest will come on the hither side of Jordan. But as yet, it is for you to press forward like the racer whose prize is not yet won, and to watch like a warrior whose conflict is not ended." You see, congregation, God justifying a sinner, declaring him not guilty, is inevitably followed by sanctification. The new life in Christ becomes apparent to all, but that involves difficult and sometimes agonizing effort because the powers of evil are right there, trying to draw us back to our old way of life and old patterns of sin. Therefore, because this process of working out one's own salvation is such a challenging and vital task, verse 12 also describes the spirit in which this command is to be obeyed. What does Paul say in verse 12b? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. What does that mean? Is Paul contradicting the joyful spirit that permeates this letter? Is he talking about a a terror of hell? Or a dread of falling from grace and being eternally lost? Is he talking about dread and doubt? No, brothers and sisters, Jesus said, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my Father's hand. The fear and trembling spoken of in our text is holy reverence, humility, and awe, living our lives each day with godly fear of grieving such a loving, gracious, holy, and majestic God of whom the believer has become a son. A holy, reverential fear that trembles at the thought of sin should be the attitude of every blood bought child of God. You should be characterized by great eagerness and holy passion to do His will. It's a kind of fear and trembling that Joseph had when Potiphar's wife enticed him. What did Joseph say? He said, "How can I then do this great wickedness and sin against God?" He regarded it as an offense against the holy God, and he did not want to dishonor him in any way. People of God, is that how you live your life? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Does the command of verse 12 affect how you live? Does it affect your choices in life? Are you concerned about the danger of apathy, the danger of becoming lukewarm? Young people, does Paul's challenge to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling affect your conduct at school? What you do with your friends? your dating practices, your use of the internet, your pursuit of a career? Does it motivate you to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Does it motivate you to walk in the light as He is in the light? Are you conscious of the fact that you are living in a world that opposes you and wants to drag you down so that you dishonor God? Dear friends, if you're a believer, if you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, you are freed entirely from the guilt of sin, but you struggle against the power of sin, and that struggle will continue until God calls you home. If you know what the Bible says about your own heart, then you cannot be flippant You know that in your flesh nothing good dwells. The Christian is one who works out his own salvation with fear and trembling lest he should fail to perceive the power of sin, his own weakness, the subtlety of the world, the craftiness of the evil one, and the holiness of God. So, we are commanded to work. The command is given to saints, the example to follow is Christ, the matter to be worked out is our own salvation, and the spirit in which we work is in fear and trembling. But secondly, more briefly, along with the challenge, there is also the encouragement. The encouragement. Please follow along with me at verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12. For, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. There is the encouragement. Paul's presence with him is not essential. God's presence is vital. The one who created the universe in the space of six days. The one who upholds all things by the word of His power. And the one who raised Jesus from the dead. That same Lord is at work in every Christian, keeping, sanctifying, renewing, transforming, and fashioning us into the likeness of Christ. He is present and working in you both to will and to do. Congregation. Even as verse 12 is a very strong statement on human responsibility, verse 13 is a very strong statement on divine sovereignty and sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12, for, verse 13, it is God who works in you. We need to understand that both human responsibility and divine sovereignty are clearly taught in Scripture and that there are no contradictions between the two. Paul is simply reminding the Philippians that were it not for the fact that God was working in them, they would not be able to work out their own salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 4, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. Without me, you can do nothing. John 5, Jesus faced a man who had an infirmity for 38 years. Jesus commanded him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. For 38 years that man had suffered. What kind of a command was this? It was an impossibility. There was no way he could obey it. And yet, what did he do? Immediately, he took up his bed and walked. The command that was given to him was no different than the command given to the Philippians. Work out your own salvation. It's an impossibility. But what that lame man could not do in his own strength, he could and had to do in the strength of the Lord. God not only gave the command, he also gave the ability to perform the command. You and I are spiritual cripples by nature. We have no strength in ourselves. Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. And yet, when God says, rise, not only must we rise, but we are also able. When He gives the command, He also gives the ability to to will and to do. How can you put your sins to death? How can you successfully resist the evil one? How can you labor for the well-being of the church? How can you put to death selfish ambition and conceit? How can you put the interests of others ahead of your own? And how can you consistently feed your soul? You can do so because God is working. He is there empowering His people, keeping us spiritually fit, healthy, and growing. There's a divine work in progress. He helps you to make godly choices, to say no to sin, to resist temptation, and to apply the scriptures to the various situations of life. How do we reconcile human responsibility and divine sovereignty? I don't know. I don't know, but both are true. I must work, and God is working. Both are true. We must simply believe, accept, and apply them both. Behind your working, there is always the gracious work of God. He works in you, first of all, To will, to will, the desire to be holy, the hatred of sin, the grief that we have as a result of sin, the determination not to sin, all of that is of God. He is working at the level of your will, helping you to think and feel correctly. But more than that, Paul says that God works both to will and to do. He not only gives you the desire, he causes you to act upon those desires. He gives you the determination and strength to resist sin and to break your old habits. He is at work at the level of your actions. So, congregation, these are encouraging and humbling verses. On the one hand, we must work. That's the command, there's no excuses. On the other hand, when we do work, we have no reason to boast. For not only does God give us the will, but he also empowers us to action. Both to will and to do. What reason do you have to boast? Therefore, we work with fear and trembling. Humbling ourselves before Him, knowing that we have nothing good in ourselves and would instantly fall were He to withdraw His hand from us. We need to learn to mistrust ourselves more and more so that we may constantly lean upon His mercy. The Apostle Paul was able to do that, and therefore he could say in chapter 4 and verse 13, I can do all things. How? through Christ who strengthens me. Dear friends, do you know the effective power of God at work in you, both to will and to do? Bear in mind that there are, there are also other powers at work in people. The word that is translated work is the Greek word "energao" from which we get our English word energy. Energy. The same word is used in Ephesians 2, verse 2, where Paul says that they once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, same word, in the sons of disobedience. Paul said that at one time, Satan was effectively working in them, energizing them. Also, in Romans 7, verse 5, Paul said that at one time he was energized by sinful passions. They were effectively working within him. So, congregation, those who do not have God effectively working in them will inevitably have something else effectively working in them. But their end, says Paul, is fruit unto death. And how thankful we can be if we have God working in us both to will and to do. What a privilege to be one of His children. And why does God do this work within us? Yes, it is for our good, our spiritual well-being, but there's something else. What is it? The end of verse 13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God takes no delight in sin and no pleasure in unrighteousness. He delights in grace, salvation, and the transformation of his people into the likeness of Christ. He takes takes pleasure in your holy life. He wants to see your salvation transform every aspect of your life. Therefore, you and I are commanded to work and by the power of God through the Holy Spirit, we're also able to work for His good pleasure. The exhortation tells us what we are to do and the explanation tells us that we are not alone in doing it. Congregation, God doesn't tell us to withdraw from this world. That becomes very clear in verses 14 to 16. He doesn't tell us to withdraw from this world. He doesn't want you to live alone in the wilderness or on the top of a pillar. Neither does He tell you to torment your body to merit the salvation of your soul. But He does call you to the diligent pursuit of sanctification, Christlikeness. Before you can do that, he calls you to put your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the one who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Have you believed the gospel? Are you resting in Christ? Then having been saved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning as those who of ourselves are weak, in whom nothing good dwells. We cannot live the Christian life apart from your power, the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us on our own, that those who are justified, those who have received the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, are empowered to go on in that life of sanctification. You cause us both to will and to do. We thank you for changing our desires, changing our our minds and our hearts, but then also working at the level of our our actions. So we look to you for grace to fight the good fight, to run the race till the finish line. We thank you that in Christ we are delivered, we are freed from the guilt of sin. We thank you that you give us strength, to live our life now so that we are slowly freed from the power of sin and we praise you, our God, for the day that is coming when we will be totally freed from the presence of sin. May we be a people characterized by great thanksgiving. So, Lord, may we Work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, with that godly reverence and humility before you. Receive our praises as we conclude, and work in us that we may be diligent the challenge that was set here before us by the Apostle through the Holy Spirit here this morning. In the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.